The podcast you're listening to is part of Sequelcast 2 and Friends, which is a member of the Batman on Film Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Find Sparrow for me. And really a message from Capitan Salazar. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Hello and welcome to Sequelcast 2. Sequelcast 2 is a podcast looking at movies and franchise one film at a time. With me, I have Thrasher. Oh, I ain't fit for the likes of you, I. Eh? And we have a special guest returning. He was on the uh, one we did on the first Pirates film, Eric McEver. Chuck Sparrow. <laughs> Hi, everybody. And if you can't guess from those uh, quotes, we are looking at the fifth and so far as this recording final film of the series, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tales. Ah, uh, yes, the classic 1938 Pirates of the Caribbean film starring Dave, or directed by David McDonald and starring Emlyn Williams, Sarah Seeger, and Hugh Williams. Ah, yep. Um, it's, it's unusual when a sequel takes place 70 years before the uh, original, but there you go. And it's made 70 years before the original. Classic passed down from generation to generation, like an old lost pirate legend. <laughs> uh, it, it brings me no uh, end of... Um, I can't even speak this morning, Jesus. It, yeah, I, I'm just blown away that the international title for this is Salazar's Revenge. And well, I, I will uh, one-up you with that. So in Japan, this is known as Pirates of the Caribbean Saigon no Kaizoku, which translates to Pirates of the Caribbean, The Last Pirate. <laughs> this was released in Japan in August, I believe it was August, um, which means it was just months before The Last Jedi, which was also in Japanese, The Last Jedi. So it was a year of legendary things dying out in Japan. <laughs> I'm still waiting for The Last Totoro. Uh-oh. Mm. Well, and you, you look and you see this... Uh... People said this was a box office disappointment, but I think that they're talking more domestically, um, meaning uh, North America, because you look at um, worldwide, it made $794 million. And if we're at the point where a movie making nearly $800 million worldwide is considered a disappointment, everyone's in trouble. But Yeah. Well, this is one of those things, too. You open up the Wikipedia page, and it's listing its stats. And uh, 794 million, and it immediately goes on to say, "Dead Men Tell No Tales" is the second lowest-grossing installment of the series, which is a um, it's a very dubious figure to be throwing around there. It is, and uh, I believe we mentioned this before, but so many people don't get it, take into consideration how much marketing costs. And when you get these budget estimates in Box Office Mojo, it does not often consider the marketing, which can be as much, if not more, than the film itself sometimes. So. Um, but uh, interesting with this film, you you know they got a, a pair of new directors. They have a pair of Norwegian film directors, Joachim Ronen and Espen Sandberg. I bet I mispronounced one of those. 
Um, and I am not uh, familiar with their their films. They did something called Banditas, which sounds vaguely familiar, but otherwise, uh, and, and some of the Netflix show Marco Polo. Have you seen any of their work, uh, Eric or Will? I've seen some Marco Polo, and it it didn't it it didn't strike me as all that interesting. So I think I, I left after the second episode. Yeah, I have also seen some Marco Polo. Um, as I understand it, what got them hired for this was uh, the feature they did before, which is Contiki. Um, which is an, an interesting film. It's um, it's a fictionalized account of an effort by a, a Norwegian man to prove that uh, South American settlers colonized Polynesia, and he proved this by building a raft out of traditional materials and traveling across the Pacific to Polynesia, mm. uh, which is a fascinating true life story. Um, you know, and it was lent itself to a lot of high seas adventure on film. Um, it, which uh, I was hoping to actually watch for this episode, but uh, other circumstances prevailed. So no comment on the quality of the film, except that it got them a big Hollywood job. Right. And speaking of big Hollywood jobs, looks like their neck, their uh, current gig is they're wrapping up a post on Maleficent 2, um, mm -hmm. also for Disney. And for what it's worth, I like the first Maleficent as far as this barrage of live action Disney remake of public domain fairy tales go. How how is Maleficent? Because growing up, uh, not to get too much of a tangent, but growing up, uh, Sleeping Beauty was one of my favorite Disney films. Is do you think I would enjoy Maleficent? Most of it isn't Sleeping Beauty. A lot of it is a prequel, and it's kind of about um, coping with rape uh, through the metaphor of a fantasy film. It, mm. I think it's quite different, but uh, yeah, I, I found it enjoyable. I mean, I think it, it doesn't help that. Uh, the guy who plays the prince or or whatever is um oh gee i think he's a he's like a new zealand actor or something that was in uh, uh um he's a the uh, plan not or no, plan nine uh district, <laughs> the, nine. district <laughs> the guy from district um, nine yeah uh, and his oh, accent um, is uh not Sh great Charlton um, Copley. yeah South Copley and, yeah and he, he's a he's a pretty good actor but i think he tries to do this accent that doesn't quite work I think you'll like it okay, but like it doesn't become Sleeping Beauty until the last 20 minutes or so. Mm. But you get the scene of the guy on the horse through the thorns and the dragon and, and all that stuff. Um, I will say that, so there is um, there is a dragon in the final segment, and the reveal about who and what the dragon is is a big old whoopee cushion of a reveal. <laughs> has, at least in my view, little bearing on the plot and little thematic resonance. So brace yourself for that, dragon lovers. Uh, yeah, um, so Pirates of the Caribbean, this movie, you know, has a different writer. It's written by Jeff Nathanson, who brought us such great pieces of work as Rush Hour 3. Um, but Terry Rossio, one of the co-writers of the, the other films, uh, is on with a story credit. And um, among, uh, besides the usual people starring in this, you have Javier Bardem, Brendan Thwaites, and Kaya Scodelario, uh, with music by Jeff Zanelli, of course, using a lot of the um, themes by the uh, from the music of the other movie, cinematography, Paul Cameron. And as we mentioned, this came out in 2017. So for sequel cast two, this is a pretty recent movie. Um, I was watching some of the behind the scenes material on the Blu-ray, which uh, is not very good as far as that stuff goes. But they mentioned the whole reason Javier Bardem is cast in the film is his wife, Penelope Cruz, was in the fourth Pirates film, and he was on set the whole time. 
And he casually or not so casually mentioned, I like to do one of these. So when they did number five, there you go. <laughs> Although this was filmed in Australia, not in Hawaii, like uh, a lot of the other ones were. And as I understand it, this production was riddled with difficulties, including problems importing the monkeys that played Jack because of uh, Australia's rules about animal quarantine. Oh, um, yes. Johnny Depp broke, I think, is it his ankle? Um, he, he suffered an mm -hmm. injury that set the production back by a couple of weeks. Um, as and in I think Kaya's he tried, is this the one, yeah. Is this one where Johnny Depp tried to smuggle his dog on set and got in it trouble with be. Australian authorities? Um, well, to, uh, to add to the troubles, he was going through the, uh, the much publicized divorce uh, with Am Amber Head at the time. And uh, that has since led to a giant Me Too fiasco. So uh, mm. some things were going on when this film was getting yeah. made. So the Oh, oh, no, just saying that, yeah, this, this movie is kind of front-loaded with a few problems. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and Thrasher, what were some of your initial thoughts? Because I think, like you, I had only seen this just to prep for this show. Yeah, this is the, the first time I'd seen it. Well, the, I think the thing that, that struck me the most is that this movie feels like a first draft. Mm. Like, all, all the elements of a really good, really thrilling Pirates of the Caribbean movie are here, but they all feel unfinished to me, uh, to the point where there are bits of dialogue that sound like filler dialogue that is just in the script until they can come up with the real line. It's a very Likewise, frustrating... You know, talking yeah. in the first film about how they create this... They create these supernatural elements that have these neat cause-and-effect rules, and like like some of the previous films, uh, the supernatural elements in this movie are all over the place. Like, there's no consistency to how the supernatural stuff works. The movie also seems to forget things that were established in previous films. And that is very frustrating as a fan of the series because this film hinges on characters and plot elements that were set up in the previous films, but it also goes willy-nilly and refuses to follow the mythology uh, as it chooses. It's it's a very frustrating film because it's chock full of good ideas, but none of the ideas gel or make sense with one another. It's uh, it's just this kind of, it's this odd mess because there's a lot of good ideas, but they don't add up to a cohesive whole. What struck me about it is it really stressed how much of a weird standalone uh, the fourth film was on Stranger Tides. That one felt what you call like a one-shot in a comic book series or something. And this one has a little bit of reference to it, but not really, especially that sort of teaser at the end there. Um, and it, it almost feels like they felt like uh, this was going to be the last one. But I think uh, the latest news I've heard is because these movies make a lot of money, Disney wants to do another Pirates film, but they kind of want to reboot it with an entirely new cast. And whether that means they remake a story from the, the previous films we've covered, I have no idea. Um, but I, I think certainly uh, Johnny Depp's um, uh, legal troubles uh, isn't helping with that and his rising paycheck, right? <laughs> As I understand, he was paid $90 million for this. Or not $90 million, Am I getting that right? It was some I, enormous I, I payday. Heard, he I heard got the $90 million figure, and the closest yeah. I can figure what that means is had he been paid $90 million for this film, that would have been like a front-paid variety story. I think it's that includes uh, box office gross participation. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the story you you hear like Jack Nicholson is paid a hundred million to pay to play the Joker in Batman, and that's only true because he got uh, profit um, points off the box office for the first three Batman movies, meaning Batman, Batman Returns, and Batman Forever. 
um, two of which he wasn't even in. So, mm. well, as we, learned, hmm? I was saying, as we learned from Freakazoid, you always want to go for the gross, never the net. The net is fantasy. <laughs> I believe Eddie Murphy called those monkey points. Um, <laughs> and bit, yeah, uh, Dead Man Tells No Tales. Uh, Eric, did you get to see this in the theater or the first I time did. around? I did. I saw it uh, opening weekend, um, but uh, I don't know. I think my uh, sixth sense was taking it. I did not do what I did for uh, At World's End, which is go at midnight in costume and win oh. the pirate costume contest. Uh, <laughs> I went in normal clothes for a matinee, and that was unfortunately about the right level of enthusiasm to muster. And was this in Japan? This was stateside. I happened to be stateside for a oh. film festival. Oh, great. Um, so was it a 3D showing or no? It was a 3D showing, and um, as I recall, the 3D was was fairly tasteful. It wasn't the uh, the gratuitous 3D on Stranger Tides, which was um, that was the era when 3D was the you know, going to save cinema. Uh, mm. This is, you know this was a 3D showing, and the 3D was perfectly fine. Well, we can take a little tangent here to talk about 3D films. Uh, Thrasher, have you seen something in 3D in the theaters that really jumped out at you that you thought did a good job? The I think I think the the film I saw in 3D in the theaters that gave that left the best impression on me uh, was was Wally. They hmm. there's there seemed to be sort of care with using the 3D to affect the depth of field and to try to use that to enhance the storytelling, as opposed to a lot of other movies where it's just an excuse to have stuff flying in your face which can get really, really artificial, especially when the thing flying to your face touches the edge of the screen and then the <laughs> illusion of three dimensions is, is shattered in the worst possible way. Yeah, I think the first time I saw something in 3D was years ago for Spy Kids 3D, which used a, a oh poor version of the process. Uh, and I think only for the last 10 minutes or something. But with... Um, as far as great examples, Avatar, of course, I think worked well. I'm very curious to see what James Cameron does for the Avatar, I don't know, like two through five million that he's planning on making. But uh, uh, surprisingly, it was a low-budget movie, Jackass 3D, that really impressed me with the 3D effects. And that mm. was, yes, it was tossing stuff at the screen, but in a comedic sense, and how they did the stunts, I think it really worked. That's not to say Jackass 3D doesn't work without the 3D. I think it does. It's not one of the better Jackass motion pictures. Uh, I can't believe I called it a motion picture. But it, <laughs> it, it was a cinematic um, event, Matt, please. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so uh, anyway, that was the one I thought was the, the funniest. And it's uh, you don't get a comedy in 3D a lot. And uh, oh. maybe you should. I don't know. Did either of you see the uh, rather ill-fated 3D re-release of The Phantom Menace? No. I meant to, uh, I did not. A friend of mine did, and he said he noticed it for the opening scroll scroll of the text, but then mm -hmm. he felt like he um, maybe his eyes got used to the 3D and he didn't notice it for the rest of the show. So I saw it um, at a very good theater in Japan, and mm -hmm. it's actually, it was some of the best 3D that uh, I had seen. I thought it was done very tastefully and very artfully. Um, and what is interesting about it was, uh, it, it was a wonderful 3D conversion, I thought. But as I understand it, uh, Lucas was not satisfied with it. And since then, before he sold to Disney, he actually redid the entire 3D conversion, um, oh. along with the conversion of Attack of the Clones, which, of course, never got a theatrical, a full theatrical release. 
yeah, I had remembered that 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 was supposed to be the beginning of a, of a 3D re-release of the entire prequel trilogy, and then it just didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, well, yeah, I think the know, plan was it was going to lead up to a 3D re-release of the entire, what was then, six-part saga, uh, culminating mm -hmm. oh. in a, a 40th anniversary. I think the timing was supposed to be such that it was going to be a 40th anniversary release of Return of the Jedi in 2017, even though that was, in fact, the 40th anniversary of A New Hope. So it was some kind of screwy math going on anyways. Yeah. Just, I, I would like to see that. Like, there, there's a part of me that wonders, like, there should be, like, one day every year, there should be just <laughs> one day where every theater shows the old Star Wars movies. Yeah, yeah. Make it a holiday. Yeah, I mean, as much as people bash the special editions, and I do think they have their problems, not to mention, you know, Lucas has made them over, like, five times since then for the home video releases, uh... I, I was born in 82, right? I mm. was an infant when Return of the Jedi came out. So without the special editions, I wouldn't have been able to see Star Wars at all in the theaters. And I think the Death Star trench run sequence in uh, episode four and the speeder bike sequence in Return of the Jedi especially work much better in a movie theater than on your little TV at home. Yeah, no, well, I think, and there's there's money to be made for taking classic films and giving them theatrical re-releases. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's an untapped market. Uh, and if, you know, theaters are looking for interesting and innovative ways to survive uh, in the modern era, I think that uh, that's an idea waiting to be tapped into. Yeah, I don't know if they do this in Japan, but in the U.S. they do this thing called Fathom Events, where it's like a one-night-only thing. And they did that for the most recent Dragon Ball Z movie. I think it's like Dragon Ball Z Broly. I don't watch the show. I don't really know. But it's like the 20th Dragon Ball Z film. And it's made over $10 million in the U.S. with like a few of these limited edition releases, which is a lot in an anime film um, in this neck of the woods. So, Yeah, well, Japan loves events like that. There are very frequently um, all-night events of two or three films oh, wow. over an evening. Um, last year I had the pleasure of attending Mechagodzilla Night, which was a screening of the two Showa Mechagodzilla films and the two Millennium Mechagodzilla films Ooh. from midnight okay. through 7 a.m. Um, so I was pickled and delighted by the time the sun rose. Mechagodzilla, Terror of Mechagodzilla. Uh, Godzilla. Mechagodzilla 2? No, that was the one that was skipped, ah, which okay. is uh, unfortunate, to put it mildly. Um and uh, this is before the, re the release of the, uh, as I gather, controversial uh, anime Godzilla film, uh, the second anime Godzilla film featuring Mechagodzilla City. Hmm, okay. Hmm. Great. Well, what does not have Mechagodzilla is Pirates of the Caribbean, which allegedly we're going to talk about. So, um, Dead Man Tells No Tales. I will say, you could skip the fourth movie and leap right into this one, and I think it would dovetail pretty well, because it has sort of a prequel sequence with um, Will Turner's son, Henry, as a boy. And this time around, you see Will Turner with uh, barnacles on his face, which he did not have after being uh, in charge of the Flying Dutchman uh, at the end post-credit sequence of uh, Pirates at World's End. And this is and this is where, it, right off the bat, like the in, in their effort to, to give the characters a quest, they forget the way the magic is supposed to work because we learned at the end of, of uh, at world's end that the only reason being on the flying Dutchman was a curse was because Davy Jones made it a curse and that the master of the flying Dutchman 
has such control over it that like that when Will Turner takes over, he makes everyone human again. Like he makes them a force for good and they go back to their original job of making sure that the souls of dead sailors safely find their way to the next world. Um, and that's all completely forgotten. It's just, it's just a, it's just a curse. Uh, every aspect of it is a curse. They don't seem to be doing their job. They're just hanging out at the bottom of the ocean for some reason. And it's extremely frustrating if you had any level at all of emotional engagement with the original film, because it asks you, on the one hand, to be engaged and remember the setup and the characters that you are watching, but to forget about their choices, sacrifices, and character qualities. So it's, I mean, it, it perhaps this is overstating it, but it's a betrayal to the audience. Well, and beyond that, so when we last saw Elizabeth, she was a pirate. She was a pirate queen. Yeah. And, you know, and I mm -hmm. realized maybe they couldn't get the actress for this film except for her cameo at the end. So I can totally understand if they if you can't get the actress, the character's not going to come back. But it really it really sticks in my craw that apparently she just abandoned her life of piracy for no reason whatsoever. And the one thing about the whole the one curse aspect of being the master of the flying Dutchman where you can only be on dry land for one day every 10 years is she's a pirate. They're both on ships. They can meet on the ocean. The time. <laughs> that gives Elizabeth more reason to want to stay being a pirate. Uh -huh. Well, I'm going to like, give it. I, a, you know. <laughs> like shouldn't like this, this would imply this would imply that Will Turner's son has only met him once, and that was in the scene we saw at the end of the third film. Well, there's an additional, as I see it, dramatic problem set up by this first five minutes, which is you establish in the first five minutes that there's this awesome cursed ship that can sail underwater. And if you're following the mythology of the first three films, which is now a suspect, that awesome underwater ship can fire and do battle both above and below water and has all of these neat supernatural gimmicks it's entirely possible they've bred another kraken all of these wonderful things waiting and we only see the ship once now this is jumping ahead but the climax of the film is freaking underwater you have a magical underwater ship a climax yeah. that is underwater and you don't use your magical underwater ship it, <laughs> it's not like they didn't have the money for it it's <laughs> it's a ridiculous missed opportunity but it's a shame because like I got really invested in this opening scene only because it it's disturbing because the young the you know the the young character he ties rocks to his leg and jumps off of a rowboat and you th or, and you think he's drowning himself when in fact he's going down to where the flying Dutchman is just kind of waiting at the bottom of a harbor um and like and like that that was really disturbing because I really feared for the kid's life although that being said. Take a lesson from free divers. Don't tie a rock to your leg. Just hold on to the rock and jump over. That way, when you need to breathe, you let go of the rock and you just float up to the surface. Yeah, I'm, I was just a bit bothered, too. There's so much stress put in the beginning or through the whole film about the trident of Poseidon, but we haven't heard it before. And, I mean, it's really a quest for the magic undo button. Yeah. And we'll get there when we get there. And I guess I just spoiled the whole movie. But it is just so, <laughs> so frustrating to um, introduce this magic artifact with all these powers that they've never talked before. And it's like you're trying to retrofit and retcon uh, elements of the story. But, I mean, speaking of which, you know, most of the movie, uh, just like um, On Stranger Tides, had some new younger characters. 
because Orlando Bloom uh, wasn't in it. This one also has younger characters, completely ignoring the younger ones, uh, the, the priest and the mermaid from the fourth film. What do we think about um, Brendan Thwaites as Henry Turner and Kaya Scolidario as Karina Smith? I, I like Henry Turner. I think it's a good performance, but a lot of it does echo like Will Turner from the first film. I guess from the first and second film, since he's trying to break a father's curse, it's it's... It rhymes, I guess, as George Lucas would say, but it rhymes a bit too much for my taste. I think both actors are fine, and I think they have far more chemistry than the priest and the mermaid in Stranger Tides, mm-hmm. um, which is an understatement. Um, but they're not given a whole lot to work with, and I think the big problem with the Karina Smith character, well, there, there's two big problems. So one is she's set up as an astronomer and horologist, um, and there's a, a lot of rather uh, dumb but i would say funny Just jokes made at the expense of her being buddy. yeah of, <laughs> of her being a horologist um but i would say that i'm not sure that studying the stars scientifically although stars were historically used for navigation i'm not sure that that mes- meshes very well with a story about uh, you know nautical adventures um so that's one thing that just it feels a bit arbitrary and again as you said thrasher um, it, it, it comes from a first draft. But I think the other big problem is much of her character involves her having to put up with dumb men talking about, oh, a woman can't do this, or a woman's never touched my telescope. or And it's it's just, it's it's boring and it's lazy to have to put a fairly interesting character and just half, half of her character being proving that she can do certain things as a woman. It's just... Well, it's fr- it's frustrating. I I really wanted to like her character, but it, her character is so poorly served by this script. Uh, I find I find no fault in Kea Scodelario's performance. I think she she really gives it her all, but she just doesn't have much to work with. And this goes back to the first draft problems, Be- because like I do like the idea in a mythical version of our own seafaring past where there are sea monsters and ghosts and things, I do like the idea of a scientifically minded character who does not believe a word of it. And yet I never buy that she doesn't believe it because, you know, she is, she is an astronomer. She, she is a horologist. She has all these, you know, uh, finely honed scientific skills, but what is she using with, what is she doing with them? She's using a magic book and a magic (laughs) Ruby to find a magic trident. If she doesn't believe that the supernatural exists, why is she looking for the trident, and what does she think it is? Yeah, all the there is a jokes about her being a, a horologist and people not knowing what that means, uh, even to the point where there's a BBC a movie review show um, called hosted by Kermode and, and Mayo or something, and uh, they did a segment on the show where it's I, I'm going to quote you a line. You have to say whether it's from Pirates of the Caribbean 5, or from the movie Carry On Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other host is unable to guess, because it's a lot of these... Uh, there's a lot of sex... I think, I'd think i argue more sex puns in this movie than any other movie in the series. Oh, and yes. they're, they're pretty mild, as you mentioned, but it's like a horologist. Oh, I'd like to see one of those, or, or whatever, right? Well, my mother was one of them. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> it, 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 it is... I uh, wasn't too familiar with the carry on movies so i watched a lot of their trailers and i and i was a bit shocked i think i might order a copy because i'm like 
These it's like these movies were made for me. It has terrible sex jokes that nobody laughs at. Um, <laughs> so, but anyhow, yeah. Uh, and, and I need to, to spell it to spell it out because the movie does a bad job of doing that. Horology is the precise measurement of time and the making of clocks. Yep. It's, it's time metrics, which that's another thing that kind of bothers me. She has this fancy watch. She keeps referring to the watch as a chronometer. No, a chronometer <laughs> is what you call it if you are a space opera pilot from the year 40,000. It's, <laughs> it's a watch. We have a name for it. <laughs> I adjusted the yes, chronometer. Yes, in a more setting, you could get away with chronometer, but it seems like such a weird affectation. It is. Uh, I adjusted the chronometer, then I punched her in the solar plexus. Yeah, it's so... It does seem like something from like a 1930s science fiction story. Um, but however, I mean, the story does take quite a while uh, to get going because uh, we learn that Jack Sparrow is going to be uh, executed and you have an extended sequence that actually was filmed on a real set in Australia um, that involves a, sort of like a plank to the front of Jack Sparrow's head and there's like all these different chases and this this stuff is, is fun you know I think it, it reminds me of uh, kind of the hijinks in uh, Pirates on Stranger Tides where Johnny Depp is running away from the courthouse and, and everything it has kind of a fun bit of mischievous to it I have a big problem overall with the characterization of Jack in this film mm -hmm. um, so in the previous films he certainly enjoys a drink and he's certainly, from time to time, a bumbling character. In this film, he's a flat-out alcoholic. And that seems right. to be yeah. his motivation for every all of his actions in the film, is surviving long enough to get another drink of rum. And there's something really rather sad after following this charming, manipulative, clever character for four other films and seeing him being reduced to an outright functioning alcoholic who's pawning his beloved possessions for rum and greeting the rum with come to daddy. Yeah, they're like I think what they wanted to do was have Captain Jack on hard times, which wouldn't be a bad way to 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 introduce him to see if, you know, Captain Jack down on his luck. But yeah, they do they do hit some sour notes yeah. way too hard with that portrayal. The other thing is, so when he like when Jack is at his lowest, which was a scene that I think could have had more impact, he trades his magic compass for a a bottle of rum because he's lost his ship, he's lost his crew, mm -hmm. his last big heist of that fancy vault, which they totally fast in the Furious, uh, <laughs> by the way, that you know that completely fell apart, and he you know he he hands over the compass for a bottle of rum and there's all these earthquakes and we see Salazar and his ghost pirate the island they're trapped in explodes uh, <laughs> and they come out for revenge and that's when later then we have to get this mythology thrown in where like oh yes well the compass leads you to what you desire most but if you betray the compass <laughs> yeah. it will bring to you that which you most fear it's like well hold on that like he he people betrayed the compass like Five times in the second and third movie, and none of this happened. Yeah, the why compass, is it just is, happening now? The compass, which was established in the second and third movies, Tia Dalma gave him. Um, and here in a flashback, we see some unnamed down on his luck pirate captain giving it to Jack. So, I mean, they really, really try to have their cake and eat it too with all of this mythology. It's just, it's just a mess. On top of that. It's like, 
the whole thing with with Salazar, we don't learn his origin until much later, but we learn that you know, uh, we we learn that he was he was a a uh, Spanish uh, admiral. Uh, and he was trying to wipe out, you know, back in the old, the high, the heyday of the Spanish Armada, he was trying to wipe out all pirates, and he nearly did, uh, but he couldn't get, but there was this uh, one ship, the captain died, passed the compass and the leadership on to Jack, uh, and so Jack defeated Salazar by tricking him into entering uh, the Devil's Triangle, which is literally this triangle-shaped sea cave, uh, <laughs> and that that killed, which I guess connects to hell, because, like, the ground underneath the water is made of lava. <laughs> and it destroys the ship, and it traps Salazar and his crew there as damned souls, and that's where they get released from when the, the island explodes. Um, but... But I it's... I, I want there to be more supernatural motivation with this. Like, I just hate the... I hate the idea that they're just these ghosts who want revenge. You're just kind of waiting in a cave... On the on the off chance that a compass will be betrayed, so that they can be released, like there's no connection to the compass and them getting trapped in the cave. I I wish that that could have been woven in together. The other thing we're talking about anachronisms when Jack when we see young Jack first become captain, and I couldn't tell if this was a child actor or if they digitally de-aged Johnny Depp. But it was um, digital de-aging. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that would explain some weird motions. Okay, that that makes <laughs> sense. But when captain his whole crew offers up tribute and among the tribute is the piece of eight which was another magical MacGuffin in the third film uh which mm. uh, again it's are it's explained in the previous two films that the pieces of eight are passed down from pirate lord to pirate lord and it's just handed to him by a random member of the crew but then the other thing is the reason why jack ship doesn't get sucked into the cave is he calls for a bootleg turn which then salazar even says i don't a bootleg turn the bootleg turn wasn't invented until the 1930s. <laughs> like, that's why it's called the bootleg turn. It was originally the bootlegger's turn, and it's what rum runners did to escape the cops in their souped-up uh, jalopies. <laughs> and, and I realize I don't expect people to know the history of Prohibition and Prohibition-inspired slang, but that is such a glaring anachronism. Uh, I, I really had a hard time... I had a hard time, like, all I had to do was not say it's a bootleg turn, and it would still work as a really fun, thrilling maneuver where they lash the cords to a rock and whip the ship around. I was really thrown off with, uh, you mentioned that, you know, the, the ghost uh, pirates and, and whatever, they, I really don't like the way they look in this movie, and the idea is it's supposed to be like pieces of them are blown apart by this explosion, but um, especially there's one ghost that just looks like a floating eye and then a mouth and you can see stuff through him. And it, to me, it just looked cheap. I don't know what it was. And certainly it was an expensive special effect. But I didn't find it as convincing or as spooky as like the skeleton pirates from even the first film. Um, it, it just didn't quite gel for me. And I, I do like uh, Javier Bardem as an actor, but I I don't think he's that good here. He was cool. Oh, look at you, Sparrow, Jack the Sparrow. And, and he'll, he'll say a few things here and there. But he, he um, is a character that's severely lacking. Even, um, it, it's not bad casting, but it, it just doesn't didn't quite gel with me. Interesting hearing you say that. I actually would argue that the design of the Ghost Pirates is one of the stronger points in the film. I do think there's hmm. some neat visual touches with them. And um, although on a narrative level, 
I agree with you that it's pretty weak to have them essentially waiting around in this cursed triangle to see what happens. There's a very brief, but I actually think rather haunting scene where we see them essentially wandering in endless loops around their ship um, yeah. right before the triangle gets broken. So there, there are some interesting touches. Um, and I also think the design, although it, it can be a bit ludicrous to see a smashed, broken up ship drifting around through the waves, um, the design of their ship, the way it it essentially rises up and spreads out its timbers like uh, mm -hmm. like ribs or fangs or something and swallows up other ships. It's uh, it, it's not a bad bit of design. Um, no, I, I loved the ship's method of attack. I thought that was so creepy and haunting. Uh, and overall, I also liked the design of the of the, uh, the ghost pirates as well. I, I I always got a little chuckle with that one ghost pirate that was just a floating hat and a hand. <laughs> and that when we see the flashback, when we see how Salazar and his crew die, we actually see his crew receive those injuries, uh, I thought was actually very affecting. Um, the one thing that kind of surprised me... And I was really hoping I was really hoping to see this, uh, and, and I didn't because we find out very late in the movie that the ghost pirates can't go on land. Uh, they just like cease to be if they step on dry land. I was really hoping that at some point, like the pirates were gonna go on land and think they were safe. But then Salazar's ship was gonna unfold and like start crawling along the shore like a <laughs> like I just want to see cool. those timbers turn into creepy insect legs. By the way, another quick tangent, um, talking about historical anachronisms, there was something that, uh, rewatching this film, really bothered me, and I just confirmed. Guillotines were not invented until about 40 years after this film was set. So, um, <laughs> that's uh, some problems. Right, and speaking of guillotines, I was really bothered by the repeated cutbacks to, so as they were kind of jumping all around the movie, but, you know, they, there's a big sequence for the rescue Jack Sparrow, and he's going to be executed at the guillotine, uh, like you were hinting at. And there's this... Ex uh, repeated cutbacks to the shot that I didn't really find very funny of um, for for a cannon or something shoots and the front of the guillotine falls with Jack Sparrow so his head is through the thing on the neck and the blades coming down and it's this upside down shot where he's like ah, ah, and it does that like feels like 20 times as all this other action is going around in the court in the courtyard yeah they cut to that reaction shot a few too many times <laughs> Well, two-thirds of Jack Sparrow's behavior in this film is drunkenly slurring and making nonsensical um, alcohol-fueled statements and running around screaming while various monsters and characters chase him. That's you know, It's yeah. the majority of, of, of what he does in this film, and it's, it's, it's frankly rather embarrassing. Well, you know what I think it is? And I think this is the flaw to the, to the performance, because like, I don't... I'm, I'm not going to accuse Johnny Depp of phoning it in, because I'm not sure... In his madness, I am not sure he is capable of phoning in a role. Yeah. Um, uh, that's like, you know, he, is he the good kind of bad or the bad kind of good? Uh, but but the Jack Sparrow performance, this is cosplay Jack Sparrow. If you've ever seen, if you've ever been at a convention mm -hmm. and there's somebody cosplaying Jack Sparrow and they're really, really into it, this is the exact same performance you get at a Johnny Depp in this movie. Yeah, well, it, it's comical and it's over the top. And I mean, he does some things that uh, that made me laugh. I mean, I laughed out loud a few times rewatching the film for this episode. But it's it's just cheap laughs. It's laughs that come from things that are funny and goofy and aren't born out of any satisfaction or, you know, out of great character choices. It's just dumb, goofy shtick. 
And later on, you had a sequence where, uh, you know, Jack Sparrow's gonna, for some reason, has to marry uh, in like a older fat woman or something. Oh, and they try to oh there's it up so much laughs. dead weight in that scene. There yeah. is, but I when I was watching, it, I'm like, wouldn't it be funnier if they had uh, Johnny Depp play the part of the ugly fat woman in drag? Yeah. <laughs> like just go full on Eddie Murphy with it. Yes, yeah, go Eddie Murphy with it. Do something to elevate it above. Oh no, I have to marry a fat woman. Yeah, that's that's one of the scene, one of the many scenes in this film that I mean I I will guiltily admit to laughing uh, as I was watching it, but it's just I don't know it's it's old timey Hollywood humor at the expense of women, and well, it's, just it's just yeah. and it's a forced wedding joke that not even a carry on film would do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, sorry to cut you off there. Oh no, it's no. That, that was the, the essence of my complaint. Uh, one character I wish was in this more was um, the sea witch. Shansa. Yeah. Shansa. I think she has oh. a really neat look. She's, you know, bald and has all these uh, markings of on her head. And she, through some means, gets a hold of the compass that Jack Sparrow um, pawned for uh, rum at the bar. And she works with Jeffrey Rush to go after Jack Sparrow, because you have to have Jeffrey Rush um, in these movies. And they give Jeffrey Rush some character moments. And I'm wondering, uh, Eric, what did you think about that? Because you're, you're a Probosa fan, right? Yeah, well, um, so it's, I mean, Jeffrey Rush always does a man's work. Um, and uh, I mean, this is no exception. It's, it's a wonderful performance here. Um, so I would say where he starts out in this film is very satisfying and it makes perfect sense in light of the arc of the character in the previous films. This is a character who, by all indications, he has dreams of the aristocracy and the upper class. And here he has finally attained it through various devious means. We see him surrounded by finery, enjoying good food, good music. Um, so we begin with him in a place that's entirely in keeping with the character we end with a noble sacrifice to, uh, I guess we're getting into spoiler territory here, to save the daughter he never knew he had. And it's this complete non sequitur. I don't at all buy that this character would have these feelings for a child that he admits to of abandoning. And it, 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 it it's very frustrating because Jeffrey Rush, he does a really good job with it. But it's inorganic, and it doesn't connect to anything we've seen the character do previously. It, it's forced, and it doesn't successfully give the movie any emotional stakes. Yeah. Now, now let's say, had this movie kicked off a trilogy of pirate films, and this mm. would have been a reveal in, like, Pirates, I don't know, 8. I can't count this morning. You know, that, <laughs> then it might have meant something. But, yeah, you're, you're trying to, again, it feels a bit like uh, what I thought of Dead Man's Chest. We were trying to cram a trilogy worth of films of story into one movie. So I'd like to go back about the witch. Um, so yes. again, a wonderful makeup job, really interesting character. Mm -hmm. uh, I am curious if that character is a holdover. So uh, Terry Rossio oh. gets a story credit on this, and I know he turned in a complete draft of the script, which, as I understand mm -hmm. it, was rejected because the primary antagonist was female. And Johnny I've heard Depp about read the that. Yeah, really? Johnny Depp read the script at the same time that he was shooting or finishing up Dark Shadows, and he didn't uh, want to have too many films with female antagonists, and never mind the fact that this would go into development hell and be released five years later. Um, 
But so I can't, I mean, the witch is a really interesting character and I can't help but wonder if she's a holdover from that previous draft. Um, it also speaks to something larger with this film is an absolute embarrassment of riches of wonderful actors in embarrassingly small roles. You have David Wenham, you have Bruce Spence. Well, Goshefti uh, Farahani, who plays uh, the Sea Witch, yeah, she, so much emphasis is put on her. I mean, she more emphasis is put on her than the witch from the second movie, who turns out to be an actual goddess right. later on. Yeah. Like, yeah, it is a shame she doesn't come back. And frankly, like w whether or not she has a huge bearing on the plot, I at least want her back to explain the supernatural elements, because <laughs> if ever a movie needed a little bit of exposition, it is this movie. I do have to say, of you know all the actors in the film, what sort what I would uh, call the most valuable player in the series might be um, Kevin McNally as Mr. Gibbs. Like it's not a great part, but he's been in all five movies, and I was very happy in this film at a point to see him turn his back on Jack Sparrow. <laughs> it just seemed like he, they gave him a little bit more to do, and I think the actor really tries hard in that part but it isn't much of a role. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Mr. Gibbs, Thrasher? Over, I mean, overall, I like him. He, he doesn't have much to do. I think the, the real underserved character is Lieutenant John Scarfield, played by David Wenham. He's just there to have another antagonistic British officer, but he's not yeah. particularly <laughs> well-motivated. He doesn't have much personality. It's just, it's one other antagonist that, that doesn't satisfactorily get defeated. Well, and that you didn't really need either, because you have so you, much. You could cut him from the movie, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you wouldn't notice his absence. Yeah. Um, no, and um, and Mr. Gibbs, um, played by Kevin McNally, is I mean, he he's a reliable character, well played. Um, I think the thing that's disappointing about him here is the previous four films he's been used to great effect to deliver big gobs of exposition. Yeah. Um, because one of the conceits of the character is that he. He loves talking and he loves telling tales. And so he's, he's proved a consistent and wonderful way to deliver some of the arbitrary mythology. And here he just kind of runs around and is loyal and then not loyal. And I don't know, he's he's there, but uh, he's quite underserved. And he actually is uh, voicing his role in the upcoming video game Kingdom Hearts 3 which has a Pirates of the Caribbean section, from what I understand. Cool. Wow. So what it must be, what it must feel like to do lines where you're talking to Goofy and Donald Duck or whatever, as this pirate character must be pretty absurd. But um... So at near, near the, when the climax of the movie really gets going, so there's this whole, there's this whole thing where they're using Galileo's secret journal to find okay. wherever the heck the, the image of with the the trident of Poseidon is, and again, this is one of those things that's sort of really unsatisfying. Is because to, to find it, you have to navigate by this one particular uh, constellation, which kind of looks like a trident uh, in its own way. And like one of the things that really bothers me is, well, that constellation's on the cover of the book. The book doesn't even need to be decoded to figure out that that constellation is important. So like all the stuff with the ruby and the blood moon completely unnecessary but when you get there one thing that i thought was just such a beautiful image is that it's this magic island and the island is covered with these crystals and it's a perfect reflection of the night sky which i thought 
it, it created some really beautiful imagery. And I think there's something so poetic about that, that, you know, you have sailors who have been navigating by the stars for generations. And then there's this yeah. Island, which is in itself composed to be like the stars that you navigate by. Um, but then, you know, they, they get there and there's one star that won't light up in the reflected constellation. So they put the Ruby from the book in it just like, and it was just like, it was like a bad puzzle from a, from a uh, puzzle game. Use yeah. Ruby shard on Ruby. Uh, <laughs> and then the sea, the sea parts in a very uh, unbiblical way. And just in the middle of the part, there is the, the Trident of Poseidon, which is this weird Giger-esque techno organic uh, goober. Uh, and I, I will, one bit of restraint, the one bit of restraint this movie has is when the sea parts, we don't get lightning flashes and see the reflections of undersea animals completely, which is an image from Prince of Egypt, Prince of Egypt. we covered on the mm -hmm. show, which has been ripped off in several other movies. <laughs> it's interesting the number of scenes in this film, including the climax, that take place in broad daylight. Um, and on the one hand, yeah. I think there's some beautiful photography. On the other, as a dramatic choice, I think it undercuts the menace of ghost pirates and other, you know, who's it's and what's it's that are going on. Uh, because it's it's beautiful, and when you're out in the middle of the sun, it's just not quite as threatening. No, so, and I I might have harped on this before, but um, especially with uh, special effects, especially movies with a lot of them, with computer-generated creatures, you do not want these shots in daylight because it exposes whatever problems there are in the character designs or the animation or the interactions with the humans. That's why you have so many scenes with uh, so many of these movies with scenes at night, scenes mm -hmm. in a rainstorm, scenes in the snow, anything you can do to have additional particular, uh, you know, detail, heavy at smoke or whatever, anything to have additional business in the scene to distract you from the fact that this is a cartoon pasted into a scene with the human and they have to interact somehow believably. So there's there's a thing in uh, in fantasy and science fiction that I, I really like, which, for lack of a better term, I call anti world building, where some big where some big important thing is mentioned but never explained. And mm. one thing that I did love about this movie is when they find the Trident of Poseidon, they go, oh, "It's Poseidon's tomb!" And I'm, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> Poseidon, the god of the sea, is real, but also he's dead. <laughs> and I love that that's never explained. Like that, that has so much more in explaining how a god died. <laughs> but it, but that does dovetail into something that's very frustrating. So we get this battle for control of the trident, which you know gives you power over all the sea. And there's this line uh, when when the Galileo's journal is first translated that that you know, comes that, that is harped on several times that to, to, to unleash the power of the sea, one must divide, which is one of those first draft things, because what it comes down to is, oh, they're, they're, they're mistranslating it. It's not divide. It's not to unleash the power of the sea. You must divide. It's to break all curses on the sea. You must break the trident, which I I don't know. I I almost wish the trident was broken because somebody decided no one should have the power, rather than somebody who's bad at Italian uh, has a really really shitty translation. Yeah. And there's something about the conceit of breaking the trident and breaking all curses at sea that just 
it's convenient and it also sets up a lot of problematic questions of what if there's another curse that's cast after this trident is broken so is that curse permanent and you know that we've established there's a quite a lot of supernatural nonsense going out in the caribbean so all of these curses getting lifted all at once uh it it opened up a pandora's box of problems well, and speaking of problems, uh, I think we're far enough in the film where we can talk about the, the very end of what happens, right, in it. So the trident snaps in half. All the curses are undone, which means that um, Orlando Bloom is no longer doomed to pilot at sea. It means that uh, Kira Knightley can run across a field. It, oh, yeah. And in, in the post-credit sequence, which oh, frustrates me to no end, did you see this, Thrasher? <laughs> Yeah, I I did. Yeah, so the post credit sequence after a lot of credits. This really should have been uh, credit if they wanted anyone to see it. Um, it's it's Will Turner and Elizabeth uh, sleeping in in bed together, fully clothed, like they were about to go on a boat. Um, but uh, there's a storm starts up, and then we see the shadow of Davy Jones cross the floor. Will Turner like turns around. There's a flash of this wibbly lobster claw. And then Will Turner wakes up like, oh, it was all a dream, which just, oh, I hate that. But then the, when he goes back to sleep, the camera pans under the bed. and There's a little pool of seawater and some crusty barnacles. So I guess it wasn't a dream. And he was there, but it's just, it was a very ham-fisted sequel set up. But okay, so you broke all curses at sea. Yes. But now a dead demon pirate is back to life and still a monster? Right. Yeah, like, well, it's like it the curse is undone, so the curse is redone. And it's it just like the logic of what's going on is not there. And the other thing I'll say about that scene is somehow it feels more pervy and voyeuristic to watch a married couple fully clothed, sweetly embracing one another than to see some them doing something overtly sexual. It's just there's something very <laughs> uncomfortable about watching two people who love one another in a quiet, intimate moment. It just, I don't... <laughs> Not fun. I know it. It is creepy and voyeuristic, and as he, I did mention the the paradox, as or I did think of the paradox you just talked about with the, him still being in the monster form, and it's like, well, where would they have gone from here then? Would you know had they decided to do a sequel, and I suppose they still could to this movie, um, would it have been about you know Davy Jones's revenge? I'm like, okay, I guess. Well, I, I guess that's like another thing is like, so is the Dutchman just a regular ship now? Now that the curse is broken? <laughs> like, is, does, yeah. But does yeah. that also, but if the Dutchman's a regular ship, because we know it certainly doesn't have a captain, does that mean that there's now nobody to ferry the souls of sailors into the next world? Like, there's all these sort of cosmological issues I want to explore. But I, I, I do want to bring up, there is one significant death in this movie because when the curse is broken all of salazar's oh, yeah. pirates come back yes. to life only to die moments later mm -hmm. um but barbosa sacrifices himself to kill salazar and save his daughter and i have a couple of problems with this one it means that salazar's undoing doesn't come as part of a final showdown with jack sparrow and they're old en and they're sort of old enemies so that's narratively unsatisfying but beyond that I don't buy that Salazar would be willing to risk his life even for his own daughter. And I feel like he's wily enough he could find a way to de to um, to defeat Salazar without dying. But also, we've seen him die and come back once before. 
So I can't really buy that it's that much of a sacrifice. Is there any reason to believe he won't be coming back again? Completely agreed. And the specific staging of how he does sacrifice himself is absolutely bonkers. Um, Mm -hmm. Jack uses his boot to pull Henry's sword out of its sheath up into his hand. He tosses it down to Barbosa, catches it, um, releases himself, stabs Salazar on the way down. And it's, I mean, it's nuts. And there's no reason that a character sacrifice had to be involved in this. I mean, if there was a sacrifice, what if you had done it where um, Barbosa, true to his pirate ways, decides to sacrifice his newly found daughter? Ah. Oh. And would have gotten away <laughs> somehow. Like, that would have been a nasty bit of business. But at least it would have been more interesting. Um, so, final thoughts on Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Um I give this a sequel, no. I I like that it's more ambitious. I like that the plot ties in more to the first few films. But it it feels cheap at times. The story is often muddled. And although it is, uh, I think, the shortest film in the series, for some reason to me, it feels the longest. It's because of that dead weight. Yeah. Thrasher? Well, okay, so my final thought ties into something that at first I loved and then I came to hate. So um, I I was kind of on the fence about the movie, uh, but when Salazar was freed uh, from the Devil's Triangle and he uh, attacks that British ship, but, uh, excuse me, but uh, leaves uh, Henry Turner alive, he makes this comment about how you're lucky I found you and you're lucky you know Jack Sparrow because I always leave one man alive to tell the tale mm, dead men mm-hmm. tell no tales and yeah. i i love that because like one i that's that's a great thing for a villain to have um but i came to and it brings up a joke that was mentioned in the first film where they say they attack and they leave no men alive and jack sparrow points out what if there's no men alive who was there to tell the tale of the attack and like right, mm, right. this is kind of an answer to that the problem is we come to find out that's the first time he's ever done anything as a ghost pirate. So it's not like he's always been doing that as a ghost pirate. But the other thing that infuriates me, when we get the lengthy flashback about his origin story where he's defeating the pirates, he just kills all the pirates. <laughs> he doesn't leave one pirate alive to tell the tale of how badass the Spanish Armada is. He just kills everybody. That's his specific order is to leave no man alive. So this villainous affectation... Is a villainous affectation he only does once. I think in the flashback... always does. I think the flashback, his exact words are, mercy, what mercy? And then proceeds to order the game. And so, like, I I loved it, and that that got so curdled and mangled through the course of this movie, I just just came came to hate that. So, yeah, I'm going to give this... I'm going to give this a sequel no. Um, This is... I've had my I, I'm I've had my ups and downs with this series, but this this movie squanders every good idea it has. Uh, performances get muddled. I I, I I'm sa- I'm very satisfied with the number with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies we have. We don't need any more, especially if they're going to be like this. sequel no i think i've been um, more of a fan of the of the series than you guys have um but this is a very frustrating film it has a lot of good ideas which do not um do not congeal together 
and are underdeveloped and although entertaining at times it's a very frustrating experience and it's more frustrating if you have leftover goodwill from the previous episodes in the series mm -hmm. so um this film probably should not have existed and as it is i hope that uh, if there are more made that they are not of this ilk speaking of which let's uh let's go into pitch a sequel um I have an idea in mind, and it would be, you know, I, I love these sequences in these movies where they're at a bar, there's a lot of bar fights, and I think, well, what if you make this a spinoff focusing on um, a bartender in the Pirates of the Caribbean universe? And it's, ah. it's and you would have kind of like a Brewster's Millions kind of plot or something where he's given <laughs> money to renovate the restaurant, but he has to do it within a certain amount of time to spend, uh, I don't know, a thousand pieces of eight or something to... So it's him trying to figure out ways to spend his money, and it, it would have cameos from Jack Sparrow and the like, but it would be, um, I would call it uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Yo-Ho-Ho in a Bottle of Rum. <laughs> Dirty Dancing, Tortuga Nights. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nobody puts baby in a corner, and by baby, <laughs> I mean me, or a bottle of rum. Just give me the rum. <laughs> sure. right, so my, um, I, I want to do a movie. I talked about how there's like cosmological problems with this movie. So I want to do a movie that addresses all those cosmological problems. So, so this movie ended with the Trident of Poseidon getting, getting broken. So I want to do a movie all about the consequences of that. Where essentially... The, yes, the mm. Trident of Poseidon is connected to all the powers of the sea, but without the, but it's sort of a linchpin. It's like a keystone that holds the sea together. So as the Trident of Poseidon has been destroyed, the seas have become total anarchy. International shipping is almost dead. The world's great empires have no naval power. Even the pirates are grounded and trapped on land because the seas uh. are wracked by storms. There's no Poseidon magic to keep all the non-Kraken sea monsters contained. So there's giant crabs and kaiju and things crawling out of the ocean. Um, and essentially, since the... Uh, since the, the British the British Empire, a rising naval power, uh, it doesn't want its dreams of empire smashed. So essentially, since the people in charge know the supernatural is real, uh, it's decided we have to bring order to the oceans or else the world is potentially doomed. It, there's a, it's an apocalyptic sea. So it's decided that the only way to do that is with another magic trident. But those just aren't lying around. So the, what they have to do is that they gather a crew uh, uh, of some of the most legendary pirates. So we get mm. all of our favorite pirate characters back, including Elizabeth, including Will Turner. They're going to be teaming up with Jack Sparrow. And what the hell? We will get Barbosa back, but in a very interesting way. So there's also, you need a new trident of Poseidon. Well, the only way you're going to get that is from the same person that made uh, Poseidon's trident in the first place, the god Hephaestus. Ah. So the pirates, the pirates have to sail the river Styx enter the Greek spirit world, find Hephaestus, get Hephaestus to reforge a trident of Poseidon, you know, using some magical MacGuffin stuff, maybe some of the pieces of eight are in there, maybe there's a lock of mermaid hair, you just fun MacGuffin-y stuff, the mermaid will be back too, she'll be, she'll be a part of this. Um, and while they're, and while they go to Hades, they do meet Barbosa and they sneak Barbosa out of Hades. So Barbosa will be coming back to life again, and we'll be rejoining this pirate crew. Um, but 
what's going to be our big complication is that uh, the sea witch, uh, uh, Shansa, she knows all about this. She's planning on it because she wants the power of the new trident herself. Ooh. And so she is going to have a, she's going to have her own, uh, she's going to have an all female witch pirate crew with a magic flying boat. And they're going to get involved in a great chase. Cause that's the thing is the, to, to, to finish off the trident, you have to take it from Hephaestus's forge and dunk it into the heart of the sea. Um, which just for fun, we'll say is over Atlantis. So we get some shots of Atlantis in this movie. Um, so while they've got this molten hot trident, there's this great chase where it keeps going back and forth between the ships where people are getting burned, where fires are starting. Um, but in, in the end, Barbosa will be the one to dunk the trident uh, into the heart of the sea, thus binding it to the sea and bringing, bringing order to the oceans. But in the process of doing that, Barbosa will become the new god of the sea. Ooh. So it'll end it'll end with him and Calypso who appear. It will end with them kind of ascending to this spirit world where she's going to teach him how to be a proper sea god. Uh and uh that's going to be that's going to be our big climax. Uh, that's going to be Barbosa's real exit from the series is Barbosa becoming the new god of the sea. It's fitting. And I'm going to I'm going to call it uh I'm going to call it uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, the final voyage. Okay. Very nice. And Eric, you've been mentioning you've been thinking of what your pitch of sequel is, right? Yeah, well, I had a couple of different ideas kicking around. Um, But uh, at this stage, the series has uh, nothing left to lose. And I'm going to imagine a uh, hypothetical future a couple of years from now, let's say in the next five or six years, in which uh, Disney realizes they're sitting on a gold mine of combining all of their gigantic franchises. So I'm going to pitch Indiana Jones and the Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> which is mm. going to nicely wrap up the thread set up by all these series. So as you've established, Indiana Jones has proven, at least to himself and his small group of friends, the existence of various gods, aliens, and legendary historical figures. But he's never been able to bring that proof home. He's seen wonders, but he's never been able to prove it to the world. He always finds the treasure and loses it. And in his increasing old age, this is weighing on him. So the film is going to be set, uh, he's aging in real time, and there's going to be a thrilling opening in the Congo where Indy is chasing after the legend of the Garden of Eden, and he's chasing after clues that will take him there. But he runs afoul of uh, not only of various hostile forces, booby traps and whatnot, but of uh, various governments, including his home. He gets involved in his home political scandal, and he uh, loses his tenure position at the university. His uh, marriage to Marion, as has been set up, is on the rocks because her thinking is, so you found love, you found a family, you found happiness. Why do you need this fortune and glory? So Indy is, uh, he's facing some troubles in his old age. And in the middle of this, against his better judgment, he uh, answers a call from a mysterious government agent to investigate this phenomenon in the Caribbean, which is thought to perhaps be evidence of uh, the Bermuda Triangle. Well, when mm. he gets there, he accidentally unleashes none other than Jack Sparrow from the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle, you see, is one and the same as the Devil's Triangle that's been mm-hmm. featured here. And as it happens, Jack Sparrow, and, you know, as, as it's been established, uh, despite all his talk of loving freedom and whatnot, he is obsessed with the idea of immortality. 
he wants to live forever. He wants something bigger and grander than a simple life of piracy can attain. And like Indy, he too has been chasing after clues for the Garden of Eden. His thinking being that if he can eat from the tree of life, then he can have eternal life. And through this series of clues, it's led him to get trapped in the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, much like Indy, Jack, as we've seen, actually, as we've seen in this film, he has a, a tendency of pushing away the people who are closest to him. So it's actually been Jack and the Black Pearl trapped alone for a couple of centuries until he gets inadvertently freed by Indiana Jones. And after some initial fisticuffs where you will get an awesome uh, sword versus whip versus gun uh, to fight, and, you know, because both men, uh, they, they fight dirty and they're not uh, afraid to shoot first. Um, they reach an uneasy truce because it turns out both of them are looking for the Garden of Eden and hot on their heels are both uh, CIA special agents, KGB special agents, and various mercenaries. Uh, and so through the various machinations of the plot, Indiana Jones and Jack Sparrow have to team up to follow these clues. And so Jack Sparrow has his clues, Indy has his archaeological skills, and the heart of the film is this uh, half-buddy comedy, half-bromance between these two men, who, in many ways, it's an odd couple. So Indy, as uh, he's been forced to confront the possibility at the beginning of the film that he is nothing more than a glorified thief. Um, Jack, for his part, he has to confront his uh, notions of uh, immortality. Because part of the twist is we discover that uh, some of what inspired Indy to pursue archaeology was in his world, Jack Sparrow has become one of these legendary pirates that's pictured in, uh, in, in picture books and larger-than-life historical records. And Indy grew up fantasizing about hunting after treasures like the, mm. uh, the historical figure Jack Sparrow. Confronted with the real Jack Sparrow, he's confronted with the possibility that he himself in his archaeology is nothing more than thievery. And the two men have to confront their notions of what immortality and what heroism really means. And they end up bonding on this adventure and takes them to the Garden of Edom as they're pursued by various Cold War foes. Now the twist is going to be these Cold War foes are being manipulated by a figure that is being referred to as the devil, as Satan. And the thinking is that uh, Satan incarnate is pursuing the Garden of Eden. There's going to be a twist for the audience. We've already brought, together, brought together the Pirates of the Caribbean and Indiana Jones franchises. The Devil is going to be played by Ian McDiarmid, which is a twist. This is Darth Sidious, who through Sith wizardry actually traveled through dimensions when the Death Star is destroyed and has been the puppet master behind well, the Cold War. So there's going to be a big dramatic showdown at the end where a pirate and an archaeologist have to seam up to save the Garden of Eden from evil incarnate. And uh, you'll have a, a wonderful scene at the end where Indy, well, so where Jack, he, he actually tricks Darth Sidious into eating, not from the tree of life, which gives eternal life, but from the tree of knowledge, saying, oh, you know, this, uh, this knowledge is, is what you seek. Well, we all know how, what happens from the biblical legend about eating from uh, tree of knowledge. So Darth Sidious withers and shrivels up and dies away after eating that fruit. And Jack decides to become a hero, gives a dying Indy tree from fruit from the tree of life, and Indy becomes the immortal guardian of the Garden of Eden. Jack becomes a hero, Indy becomes a legend, and all of these franchises are tied together in grand fashion. And that will be Indiana Jones and the Pirates of the Caribbean.
That is awesome. And I got to say, any movie can be improved with a third act Darth Maul reveal. Oh, yes. <laughs> I wonder if you would, maybe as the, the bit in the credits, you would include Han Solo meeting up with Indiana Jones somehow. <laughs> you need to make this as a fan Not film, a I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a fun idea. Um, so, uh, next week we talk about things, what we've been watching. And uh, I... So last night I went to the theater and I saw the movie Glass, but I don't want to speak about it because I don't think a lot of people have seen it yet. And, um, you know, that's sort of the end of Shyamalan's trilogy, if he's to be believed, of uh, Unbreakable and Split. Um, instead, I'll talk about a movie I saw streaming on Amazon Prime, a very odd direct-to-video movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger called Aftermath, based on the true story of... Uh, the real story is in Europe, but this was in the movie. It's in the United States. Uh, based on the true story of a guy who's um, he was expecting his his wife and daughter uh, and grandchild to come visit him, and it, it turns out the airplane uh, suffers a collision with another airplane, and uh, and they die. They don't make it, and so this guy gets so distressed he tracks down the air traffic controller responsible for the deed. And murders him. Cool. So it's a very interesting story. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the movie Aftermath, um, although it does cover the grief of both the man who lost his family uh, through this airplane accident and the air traffic controller, who is struggling to see if it to see if it was his fault, and he's going through an audit at work and all these things. Um, Schwarzenegger, uh, sad to say, does not have the dramatic chops. To um, to play such a part, and you could have had like a Paul Giamatti or someone else do this part, and I think it could have been maybe an Oscar-nominated film, perhaps. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with the script, so to speak. But you, but there's a scene um, to give an idea of the the tone of this film, where Arnold he's he's distraught that his wife and daughter are dead and grandchild are dead, and uh, he's having a beer with his his neighbor, and uh, I think he's just a construction worker or something, and um, and his neighbor says. Well, we're really sorry about uh, what happened to your family. My wife made meatballs. Here's have some. They're awesome. She makes them with pine nuts. And then Schwarzenegger says something like, "Oh, my wife is dead. Oh, I'm so sad." Like I don't like you have poor humor against mediocre dramatics mm -hmm. with someone who uh, is not that great of an actor for this kind of a movie. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend it. It's a very dour film, but I I think the I would rather see a documentary about the real story because um, it's a it's a very interesting premise, I think. Yeah, that's an odd bit of casting to put Arnold Schwarzenegger in a story like that. You know, I, th I think he he's in sort of his contrarian phase. He did that sort of uh, drama zombie movie called Maggie, I think, a few yeah, years Mandy. ago. Mandy, Mandy, maybe that was... uh, No, it was Maggie. Mandy Maggie? is the film starring Nicolas Cage, which oh. um, uh -uh. I, I actually had the pleasure of seeing at a, a screening a couple weeks ago. <clears throat> I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. It's bonkers, but it's not as bonkers as it wants to be, is uh, mm -hmm. my, my short take on it. Right. I mean, Aftermath, I considered Schwarzenegger to be in his Copland phase, although I think Copland is quite a good movie, so that's a, not the best comparison. Um... Eric, what's something you've been watching? Well, um, I've been seeing quite a few good films, but I'd actually like to talk about something I've been reading. Um, okay. I was lucky enough over Christmas to um, to get a copy 
Um, I don't know if you're either of you are familiar with the uh, the newspaper paper strip Gasoline Alley. Yes, I am. Um, it's uh, so it's it's one of the longest running newspaper strips um, continuously published. It actually celebrated its centennial last year. Um, but the uh, the reason why it's been so special as it's continued through, I believe, four authors is um, the fact that the characters have aged in real time. Um, it's the mm. first comic strip to have characters grow up and have children and then for those children to have children. Um, and it's it's set in this small, I mean, the, I think, New England country town. It's called Gasoline Alley. It refers to the, the garage where several of the characters work. Um, because it actually started when automobiles were a new phenomenon and it was this sweet, gentle comic strip about a group of four guys hanging out and fixing cars. So I was lucky enough for Christmas to get a, a reprinted copy of the first two years of the strip. And it is marvelous. Um, so in its initial run, it's written by Frank King. And the strip, it got its fame um, when it broke from the model of being four guys hanging out and fixing cars when one of the guys, um, Walt, confirmed bachelor, a baby is left at his doorstep. And the strip follows him raising the baby, who now in the continuity of the strip is, I believe, 100 uh, and has grandchildren and great grandchildren of his own. But uh, in these first two years, he's raising the baby Skizix and courting the woman who will become his wife. And it's just this wonderful, sweet, gentle mm. humor, beautifully drawn. Um, and it's a fascinating slice of history. I would say, by and large, it's aged very well. Uh, there's um, there's an African-American housekeeper who is unfortunately it's a characterization of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but that aside, it's I would say that culturally and in terms of the writing and the humor and the art, it's it's really aged quite well. So uh, if you can track down a copy of the original run of Gasoline Alley, highly recommend it. Now, was this a comic book in color or black and white or the comics? Uh, black and white. Black and white. OK. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, I've not heard of Gasoline Alley, but when you mentioned that people age over time, it reminds me of a strip my grandma enjoys called For Better or For Worse, I think. Mm, I've heard of that. That that uses sort of a similar, it's, I think it started in the 60s, but what's weird about that one is um, the, the art style, of course, evolved over time, and it used to be more sketchy looking, and then it looked more rounded, more Disney looking, for lack of a better term. And now, uh, it's the same person that's been doing the strip the whole time, has reverted back to the style of when the strip started visually because mm. they find that much more interesting to draw. And they had a lot of complaints from, I think, uh, newer fans of the strip that are mm. like, well, wait, this isn't the, uh, the comic I know. Uh, so that is an interesting thing where they do long form with comic strips. Um, I believe even until his death, Stan Lee wrote the uh, Spider-Man um, weekly comic strip. And it's still being published. I actually read that um, is every it? day. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's, yeah, I so, mean, it, it's it's boilerplate stuff, but it's it's still fun to read. Yeah. It takes them two weeks to get to the monkey in the zoo who's fighting people. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, stuff, it's, but, um, it's one of those weird, it's one of those, like, it has a weird structure because it's essentially a three-panel strip, and the first panel has to recap the story. The second <laughs> yeah. panel has to let yeah. you know what characters are currently involved in the scene, and then the third panel has to set up the next strip. Yeah. So, so it gives it a very interesting rat-a-tat pacing. 
so for those who are interested, currently Mary Jane and the uh, and Luke Cage are te- have teamed up to rescue uh, Peter Parker slash Spider Man from possession by the Purple Man. Cool. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I wonder how far they have to write that in advance, or if uh, they must have reprints of some of those Spider-Man strips somewhere. I, I was sort of pleased to, uh, maybe I'll get a copy if I can find it used at the store or something, but Stan Lee did come out with a, a hardcover book reprinting some of the best of his Stan soapbox columns he used Ooh. to have as his little editorial at the end of the magazine, um, a, a lot of which are, you know, still... Uh, you can relate to you today, anti-bigotry, all, all, all this sort of stuff. Uh, you've seen some of these have popped up in social media uh, again lately as he uh, died not that long ago. Um, but uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching or reading or thinking or whatever? <laughs> so I saw another uh, nautical-themed uh, film. Uh, it was a uh, 2007, another 2017 film, uh, Cold Skin, based on the novel by the same name mm-hmm. by Albert Sanchez uh, Pinol. Which it's it's kind of a, a a a horror drama with a lot of Lovecraftian touches, but the the short of it is it's about this young uh, British lighthouse keeper who gets a job you know uh, at a lighthouse uh, working under a senior lighthouse keeper on this remote island in the middle of nowhere, and what it turns out is that there's this there's this female fish creature that sometimes stays in the lighthouse and like does things and like and and like eats food and that the old lighthouse mm. keeper you when initially initially introduced the old lighthouse keeper old lighthouse keeper it's like she's being kept around as a pet but as the movie progresses you learn that the relationship between the two is much much darker but um every night other fish creatures rise out of the sea and assault the lighthouse so it becomes this kind of fortress story but there's lots of really neat period touches um mm. it it looks it's shot it is shot very cinematically for what could for for a movie that clearly does have a lower budget than a lot of things but they like you see every dollar on the screen it's it's very well done it's very atmospheric there's a little bit too much voiceover for my taste Mm. but left enough of an impression on me that i'm going to try to track down the novel that it's based on so that's Mm. a cold skin from 2017 directed by xavier gens so is it a foreign Neat. film or is it in English? Uh, I it it is all in English. It's English actors, uh, except for I think the fish. The fish woman is. Uh, let me see if I can find her. The fish woman uh, uh, near us is played by uh, Ora Garrido, who's a Spanish film and television actress. Uh, and that's and I guess I, when it comes down to it, that's that's the one real kind of thing that is probably going to hold this movie back is that when it comes down to it the only female character is a fish monster who never speaks the performance is amazing but this is not mm. a film that's going to pass a Bachdahl test or, or any other similar test yeah um great well, Nick, before we wrap things up I wouldn't mind talking quickly about the uh the Ghostbusters thing we sort of touched on Oh, yeah. For the show. So, uh, yeah. Ghostbusters, we covered on, uh, Will and I covered on Cast 2 years ago. Uh, but speaking of which, I, I got in contact with one of our um, super fans of the show, uh, Alex, who was the guest in our Pirates 4 episode. Uh, and he actually found the sequel cast uh, original episodes I had lost. So, we're going to add these to the feed so you can listen to them um, throughout the year or whatever. Um, and, and anyhow, there's neither here nor there. But with Ghostbusters, um, they did a, a 
a version, sorry, I guess sort of a spinoff, you'd say, that was with all women that um, I, I thought was okay. I wasn't crazy about it. My wife really likes it, but um, the box office was a little disappointing and, and so forth. And so now they are doing uh, a new Ghostbusters film directed by Ivan Reitman, uh, his son, Jason Reitman. So Ivan Reitman directed the first two films. His son has done, oh, mainly like Oscar-nominated dramas, like uh, Juno it might be his most famous film, or Up in the Air with uh, George Clooney. Um, and this new teaser, it, it just, it plays music from the first film, but it's like a slow pan over, uh, looks like a scene out of Back to the Future 2 or something, where you see wind and leaves and in a garage you see some lights you see a barn the old, a what a barn a barn sorry a barn and inside is the old ecto-1 and a uh, an entertainment weekly article talking about uh kind of revealing this and so forth um mentions that the movie mainly focuses on kids but i'm willing to bet you're gonna have dan Aykroyd and ernie hudson uh Probably not Bill Murray back in some capacity. <laughs> and that just made me think of the 90s show Extreme Ghostbusters. Start dialing that 1-800 number. Which, which mm. wouldn't be a bad basis for a film, really. Extreme Ghostbusters? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how so? Well, like, it's... it's if you're, gonna, if you're going to make a direct sequel, but you want a younger cast, that's just the, the way to do it. Do it kind of passing a torch. It's a new group of Ghostbusters. One of the old ones is acting as a mentor. Although, frankly, I do like the idea of Egon as a tenured college professor. Not that we're going to get that in this movie. But, uh, <laughs> I guess, actually, that's kind of what worries me. Are we getting mm. a CGI Ivan Reitman? <sighs> Stranger things have happened. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um... but like, I, we've got three Ghostbusters movies. They're all entertaining in their own ways. I'm not sure we need a fourth, and I'm probably like, unless something amazing happens, if I see this at all, it'll probably be when it shows up on a streaming service. Yeah, I agree with you. And so, um, Jason Reitman, he's a really good filmmaker, um, and he co-wrote the screenplay with Gil Keenan, who did um, Monster House and um, oh, okay. the uh, the remake of Poltergeist. So it, mm. it's got a good pedigree behind it. Um, but again, it's one of these films, does it need to exist? And, um, you know, the, the original Ghostbusters, of course, that's a classic. Um, the sequel has, has its merits, it has its demerits as well um 2016 film i think it's got uh it's got more going for it uh than you would expect the unfortunate thing it seems like there's there's some bad blood going around somewhere with this so leslie jones who starred in the 2016 film and was very funny in it um she she was the best on, thing in that movie actually as far as i'm she's, concerned she's excellent and of course and this is a whole other conversation but she uh went through racial bullying uh upon the release of the film that no one should have to go through so she's oh, gotten the short end of the like stick sex yeah. pictures leaked and yeah yeah it's just this really ugly thing and she is not happy about this film she just posted on twitter i don't i mean i don't she, the 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 upshot of the the post is so insulting like fuck us we don't count it's like something trump would do and it's just and she goes on to imitate trump in the tweet and it, it's it's so she has a point but it, it's a very ugly thing to write and it's just rather sad 
Well, there's an unspoken rule in um, in Hollywood, but I think it applies to almost any job. Is like you don't shit where you eat, and yeah. you don't be. Um, you know, you never know who's going to be in charge of your next job, right? Or who you're going to work with next. But suffice to say, after saying that, I don't think Leslie Jones is going to have a cameo in this Ghostbusters <laughs> film. But uh, well, she's not going to have a cameo, but she's also not going to get the 2016 Ghostbusters sequel that was planned. Well, no, look, it's interesting no. you mentioned that in the Bad Blood. I tracked down a few interviews uh, with Dan Aykroyd on some different radio shows where he's hawking his Crystal Skull vodka. And, of course, <laughs> they get him to talk about Ghostbusters, as you do. And he mentioned um, he was an executive producer, along with Ivan Reitman, on the 2016 uh, female-led film. And he was very upset with Ivan, with the, blah, 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 Paul Feig, the director, for having a budget that was too high, uh, for not listening to Dan Aykroyd's ways to improve the film, and having a lot of reshoots. <laughs> and for all those reasons, he blamed the movie for being a little bit of a box office disappointment, because it was a very expensive film. And I, I, I do agree. I think a weakness is that there's too many special, special effects in that Ghostbusters film, which seems like a weird thing to say for Ghostbusters. Well, almost but, none of them practical. I think that this one of the strengths mm -hmm. of the original Ghostbusters are a lot of practical effects. Now, admit all the technology they had at the time, but those things do not date. No. I was trying to look up the full name of uh, Dan Aykroyd's vodka. It's it's pretty hilarious. It, I, it it's yeah. marketed as Crystal Head Vodka, but it's got it's got a very long hilarious name. I think it's. Oh, okay. Crystal Head Triple Filter Deep Aquifer Pure Spirit Vodka. And that's the, that's the kind of long-winded name I can imagine Dan Aykroyd delivering, like, in a perfectly flat delivery, that he loves doing techno babble, and even his vodka has techno babble in it. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoy vodka. I've heard it's a good vodka, but, like, it starts at, like, $50 a bottle, which I can afford, but it's a bit steep, but I guess the bottle could be a discussion piece. Yeah. But you, in, at least in bars in the United States, you see bars with an empty bottle of that vodka because the skull looks really cool, and they even have a double-sized version. Um, however, does a $50 bottle of vodka taste any better than a $15 bottle of vodka? I do not have the palate to judge, really. <laughs> Depends on what stage in the evening you're drinking it. Uh, yes, and <laughs> if you're mixing it or, yeah. The old uh, vodka and uh, cherry Kool-Aid standby. <laughs> Flaming rum punch. A child's cocktail. Um, okay, anyhow. <laughs> although although I, will, I will say this, because there was a, so much sexist backlash against the 2016 Ghostbusters movie, yep. I frankly would love it if the new movie did have a post-credit scene where both teams meet and get along really well. I think they did a comic yeah. book. They've done some comic books about that. I think that would be funny. What I yeah, IDW did a comic book where it is the movie Ghostbusters teaming up with the real Ghostbusters for the animated series teaming up with the 2016 Ghostbusters and this huge cross. Oh. Well, this do is kind of like that. Do they battle Freddy versus Jason versus Ash? <laughs> uh, no, I think there is. I feel like there is a Ghostbusters versus Evil Dead out there somewhere. Uh, but no, it's like it's some sort of like interdimensional spirit being that they all have to come together to uh, to defeat before it destroys all of their New Yorks. That's pretty neat, though. 
the crossover comics I'm more baffled with, and this is they've done this a few times, is what DC Comics has been doing with the Looney Tunes, where you have these one shots of like Catwoman and Tweety Bird, or um, and, and and the and the characters like Tweety Bird are drawn in extremely realistic fashion, and it's very unsettling. Uh, I think you had like Elmer Fudd and Batman. <laughs> it was one of them. Like it's uh, they have some pretty unique combinations. You did they had a Ninja Turtles in Batman comic a few years ago, which kind of makes sense and then you, you get into things like superman versus aliens and it's like why <laughs> uh there's a the, i really want to read there's one that star trek uh original series versus planet of the apes there's that's also cool. a there's yeah. also classic star trek and green lantern oh mm. anyhow yeah so um yeah this episode we've been talking about pirates of the caribbean on Dead uh, Dead Man Tales No Tales. I can never remember that title. Uh, <laughs> on arrival. <laughs> too many echoes of Dead Man's Chest. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Next time we will be talking, uh, looking at a duology of films, starting with The Fugitive with uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, followed by the sequel that wasn't really marketed much as a sequel, U.S. Marshals. So, um, Eric, thank you uh, for coming on to discuss Pirates. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Sure. Yeah, we and do. Uh, before you go, we're going to have you do a scene with uh -huh. Thrasher. Do you see that the the link to see the text on there? I do. Opening it now. Yes. Okay. And um, Thrasher, why don't you set up the scene and, and figure out what character uh, both you guys are going to do? All right. So this is the scene uh, in the uh, British prison in the colony where Captain Jack Sparrow and Henry Turner f meet for the first time. And this is after Henry's been searching for Captain Jack Sparrow for quite some time. So would you, Otter, would you like to do uh, Captain Jack or Henry? I am reluctantly going to relinquish the part of Captain Jack to you. Um, he has some choice lines here, but uh, I cannot do a good uh, Captain Jack. So take it away, sir. All right, so they speak to each other through prison bars. Who are you? My name is Henry Turner, son of Will Turner and Elizabeth Swan. Oh, you're the evil spawn of them, too. Does uh, Mummy ever ask about me? No. Oh, no, go on. She, she called my name in her sleep. She never spoke of you. Are you sure we talk about the same people? Uh, you know, he's a cursed eunuch. She's a golden-haired, stubborn, pouty-lips neck like a giraffe and two of those wonderful... Yes, yes, it's her. <laughs> That's one of those carry-on scenes. Talking about. Scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um some great dialogue in that scene. <laughs> it is. It's it's a good moment. And uh no, that's that's just really something. We'll have to I'll be very curious when they reboot Pirates of the Caribbean if they're gonna have Jack Sparrow or not, or if it'll be a young Jack Sparrow, which would be my guess. But You're whatever probably it is, closer it'll... to accurate with young Jack Sparrow. It'll be I, I interesting think. to see what they do because there's there's enormous potential to do pirate themed films, but uh, mm -hmm. the, there have been very few that have been successful. So we will see if the pirate movie curse returns. And, and yet, the ocean set Aquaman has been setting box office records around the world, making over one billion dollars, making more than Justice League, which flabbergasted me. Um, <laughs> so. There you go. Uh, Eric, do you have something you would like to plug? Well, um, so as a matter of fact, um, I, when we was on last time, I was saying that I was awaiting news of uh, 2019 screenings of my film Paleonaut. And um, actually, as of uh, just a few days ago, I do have some to announce. 
Um, so some wonderful news. Uh, it's going to be screening throughout the year at uh, Comic Cons throughout the United States as cool. part of something uh, called Geek Fest. So uh, there will be screenings all throughout the year. Um, the one that will be uh, nearest is the first weekend of March, March 2nd and March 3rd at Comic Con Revolution in West Palm Beach. Uh, now, if you're not in West Palm Beach, you'll actually have another chance to see it that weekend if you happen to be in Stillwater, Oklahoma at the Red Dirt Film Festival. So uh, if you are in West Palm Beach or rural Oklahoma, come and check it out. And if you haven't had enough pirate films at this stage and you want to hear about uh, Jack's formative years, go to YouTube and look up my film, The Early Years of Captain Jack Sparrow, made in 2005 when I was the ripe old age of 19. I have to ask what, uh, and I might have asked this when you were on before, if, if, if I did, forgive me, but um, what kind of camera did you film that on? Because back then you didn't really have a lot of great choices for um, consumer level cameras. No, you didn't. And um, I filmed it on, oh golly, well, it was mini DV. And I think the brand was a Sony ZRX10. Um, it was just okay. a consumer grade handy cam. But uh, in teenage fashion, we used the resources we had. Yep. And, and uh, we, even, though it was a, you know, even though it was digital, it recorded to a tape, right? It didn't record to a hard drive? Yes, yes. Recorded to a tape that then um, connected the camera to uh, iMac and uh, played it back and recorded on the iMac. And the film uh, wore down both the camera and the iMac, I'm proud to say. Did it successfully render all the way without any audio slippage or... It did, although uh, we had to, as I said, it wore down the computer and uh, there were a couple of late nights and um, panicked phone calls to technicians to uh, get it fixed, um, as well as, as I recall, um, inconveniencing my mother when she was trying to get some clerical work done on the same computer. So, uh, <laughs> true filmmaker fashion. Did, uh, did you ever do a screening of sorts? I know it's a fan film, but... Well, um, as a matter of fact, yes. So um, it had its premiere at. Uh, so um, I was part of a, a, a group of private schools that um, I went to a, a private school that was part of a consortium of private schools in the Southwest. And there was an annual arts festival where students from these half dozen schools got together at one campus for a festival with plays and music performances and film screenings. And uh, it had its premiere at. Um, the, uh, the block of screenings for my film there, and uh, the screening was standing room only. Several hundred students showed up, wow. which was uh, a delight at age 19. And then uh, there were another couple of standing room only screenings at my school. And uh, actually, one of my prouder moments early in college was I had a copy of the film with me. And uh, there was a student who had gone to the arts festival and uh, had seen the poster but was unable to attend the screening and she saw the DVD box and freaked out. So that, that was a that was a sweet little moment of, I don't know, having some sort of a brand name reach, albeit mm -hmm. piggybacking on Disney brands. So uh, so yes, no, it's uh, it's uh, had done its time, had a few uh, few good screenings, and now it's out there to be enjoyed. Great, uh, Thrasher. What about you? I've got nothing uh, new or big to plug, although uh, in a few weeks I am going to be uh, in Savannah, Georgia. So, you know, if anybody uh, wants to hang out in Savannah, Georgia, I'll be there for a few days. Uh, I guess re reach out to the show. <laughs> Maybe we can arrange <laughs> something. 
is uh, I will is be that checking Jeff... in with Jer- with uh, Jersey Jason now Georgia mm-hmm. Jason who is uh, still down there. Is that a Japanese restaurant we used to go to in Savannah? Thrasher is still there. I think Sakura's is still there. I know mm-hmm. um, uh, Juarez, the Mexican place, that is unfortunately closed down. Oh, that's too bad. What's, what did they replace it with? It's like it's like a fancy bistro type place. It, it's like mm-hmm. ridiculously upmarket for for uh, the area that it's in. You Mainly may like this very end yeah. of the strip. <laughs> you may like this story, Eric, really quick. So Thrasher is allergic to shellfish, and. <laughs> And we severely uh, allergic. Well, uh, severely allergic. Yeah, you're right? in good. You're in good company. So. Uh, yeah. So not not an uncommon allergy. And he ordered uh, chicken, but they must not have uh, cleaned off the the plate or something. No, no, uh, it wasn't that. Oh, it, it was they. I I had ordered chicken. You had ordered nothing with shrimp in it. But a waiter came by with like a sizzling shrimp fajita ah, and okay. the steam from the shri- shriveling yeah. shriveling uh, sizzling shrimp fajita is what triggered my allergy. And so I proceeded to order a uh, order of flan to go as Thrasher is there dying, trying to get out of the restaurant. But you didn't order it to go. You ordered and ate it in the restaurant while I was outside trying to breathe. <laughs> I didn't you remember that part. Your window. I know I can see you. <laughs> oh, the folly days of youth. So um, maybe I shouldn't be uh, sharing this particular story in a public forum, but uh, that reminds me of a particular high school escapade I had where... One of the things we would do, we'd have so-called off-campus days where instead of eating at the school cafeteria, we could go to various uh, diners in the vicinity. And the most popular, oh, which okay. J- Johnny's. Um, if you're ever in Oklahoma City, go and enjoy Johnny's. Wonderful hamburgers. But I went there with a group of friends. And as we arrived at the restaurant, there was a elderly man leaving the restaurant. And, I mean, bless his heart, he must have been having a horrible time. But as this group of rowdy teenagers arrives, steps out of the restaurant, poor man, every step, this loud, wet fart, one step after another, just whoopee cushion, whoopee cushion, Uh whoopee cushion. And as we walk past him, stifling our laughter, declares under his breath, I gotta get out of here. And we step into the restaurant, burst burst into laughter, burst into tears and generally felt terrible about ourselves. Well, so, as long as you still feel terrible, then all is right with the world. <laughs> yes. Um, so, eat at Johnny's is the moral of the story. Right. Um, <laughs> it's, oh, yeah, I'll be at, in uh, around the end of February, I should get the dates, I just don't know when it is yet, uh, I'll be doing a, a sequel cast live panel with some friends local here to Portland. We'll be looking at um, the... Uh, Ranking the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ooh. and um, we'll 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 see how much uh, we get our asses kicked by how much we don't know about this stuff. But uh, <laughs> that'll be at Portland Wizard World uh, Comic Con, which is a um, terrible name to say, but that's what it's called because it's part of this chain of uh, conventions called Wizard World Comic Con, whatever. So there you go. But one of these days, I'm going to do a live sequel cast panel with Thrasher. Because believe it or not, we've been doing the show for, uh, I think, a decade now. Isn't yeah. that right? Yeah, in various forms. And we have never recorded a show in the same room together. Ah. Or live in front of an audience, for that matter. Never quite so, worked out. But I, I'm going to try to really press for Dragon Con this year in Atlanta. Don't you think that would be a good place to do it at? Yes, and actually, there there is a chance I am going to be there. So that's something yeah, I think we right. can pull off. Yep. Yeah. 
and we could get uh, Jason up there too. Okay. Well, anyway, Eric, thank you so much for being on this show. To thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, have a good uh, rest of your night there in Tokyo. Thank you. I'm going to have sweet, sweet nautical dreams. Mm-hmm. As long <laughs> as they're not wet dreams, I think we'll be okay. Nice and salty and barnacly. And... <laughs> oh, good Lord. <laughs> All right. And uh, very, very good. So, Thrasher, any, uh, any last bit of business you'd like to talk about before we round out the show? No, just that I'm kind of shocked we didn't talk about the big cameo in this movie. Paul what? McCartney plays Uncle Jack. Let's talk about that really quick, yeah. So, uh, Pirates 3 and 4 had cameos from Keith Richards playing Jack's father, who, uh, I don't remember what his name was, but it, it wasn't Jack, but the point is he's, uh, and, and this one is Paul McCartney, who I guess was has been friends with Johnny Depp, and Johnny Depp had appeared in a few Paul McCartney music videos, and this is McCartney returning the favor. Um, what do you think about this scene? So it, it's it, it's sort of like they're, uh, Johnny Depp is being taken to the guillotine, and he recognizes a voice doing a, a, a musical number, and it is his Uncle Jackie, uh, played by Paul McCartney. Paul Paul McCartney is just so cheerful and so so friendly and affable. I want to yeah. see a movie where it's just him, the Keith Richards pirate, and like maybe like Roger Daltrey as fun-loving pirates doing like a road movie where they just show up, sing songs, and outwit tough guys. I I loved this cameo, and like not just because it's Paul McCartney who who I, whose music I really enjoy, but that he he plays the role so matter of factly. It's just it, it 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 makes me realize, wow, we should have had more movies with the Beatles in them, right? Not, yeah, not just yeah, the two um, we got. I've always meant to see the Paul McCartney film. I think it's called Give My Regards to Broad Street from the '80s. That was kind of like a a drama of some sort, from what I understand. Uh, but yeah, no, he he's good. I think the makeup looks really good on him. They they're really good at doing those ruddy cheeks on people, and um, it's a shame he he doesn't get more to do. And I, I was uh, they have a special feature on the Blu-ray about it that I watched, and and they said uh, originally the dialogue wasn't very good, and so um, Johnny Depp and Paul McCartney uh, had a few bottles of wine and punched up the dialogue uh, overnight. That's um, cool. So, and I think there, there's very good rapport between them, and I think they have better rapport than Keith Richards and Johnny Depp had. And maybe that's because of the, the real friendship between Johnny Depp and Paul McCartney. Could be. I mean, he does seem like a, a legitimate fun uncle in this uh, in this role. And uh, I like that he has a he gives he does a bad joke. Well, he does several jokes, but what's, yes. what joke specifically are you talking about? Was it the one about the bar and the mop or whatever? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Did I tell you the one? Did I tell you the one about the skeleton? So the skeleton walks into a bar and he orders a mug of beer and a mop. Right, and that's that's, that's yeah, really, that's that's a good joke. That's a thinker that one is. Uh huh. So, and I wrote a song um, about it. Oh, there's a skeleton and a mop. Do ba do ba do do ba do do. And apparently, the uh, the song you hear him singing uh, used to be sort of a, a kind of local. Um, busker song that you would hear on the streets of uh of oh, england cool. that, that paul mccartney knew as a boy oh cool so um you know probably not chronologically appropriate but i don't think anyone's counting about the, this the uh historical accuracy of sea shanties well some some of those songs have deep roots they do and um you ever play the video game assassin's creed black flag no no i haven't 
Uh, so there are historical sort of games, uh, historical fiction. Of, of course, it's fiction. It's a video game. Um, Involving assassins, secret societies, aliens. Yeah, yeah, assassins. Virtual and reality. And, and, and Black Flag is uh, uh, Caribbean, you know, pirate-focused, and there's a lot of you on the ship. And uh, throughout the game, um, if, if you want, you can turn this off. I don't know why you would. Uh, if you're not in a fight or something, the your crew will start singing sea shanties. And they actually recorded... Uh, a dozen or so historically appropriate sea shanties hmm. that they even released as their own spinoff album. Cool. So, fun bit of business there. Um, all right. So I'm going to stop recording. But well, do we do want to do our sign off? Of course, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Schoolcast <laughs> so, two. Uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying, if you're going to be disemboweled, ask for Harry. He has the softest hands. I like small friends myself. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like Swedberg. That doesn't sound like Johnny Depp. <laughs> That's not a beetle. I oh, was the like... fifth beetle. All remember, uh, remember, Paul. All you need is love. That's not a good beetle impersonation either. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. Yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of.